Welcome to Pods Like Us. I'm Martin Quibell, known to my friends as Marv, and this time I'm speaking with Jessa McLean from Blueprints for Disruption. Hey, Jessa, thanks for speaking with me today. Thank you, Marv. And uh, it's Blueprints of Disruption. However, there was a big argument when we first launched on what it would be for or of, and I think I go between the two in my intros sometimes. So if I can do it, you could do it. Thank you very much. Quick, change the notes, Martin, of. Never make that mistake again during the episode. So what was the inspiration for the show and the history of how you got it started? Well, let's start with the history. I was approached by some folks who were already running a podcast, a very successful podcast, New Left Radio. and. I was kind of shit disturbing within the political sphere at the time. And they thought that I would make a decent podcast host. I was very skeptical. I don't think anyone wants to hear me talk. My family hears me talk enough, but they were really encouraging. Um, And so it was like, well, what are we going to talk about? And at the time I was burnt out, like, exhausted from fighting within the political sphere. So we're talking about like party politics over here in Canada. We have the equivalent of the Labour Party on the left. And yeah, I had been spinning my wheels in these spaces, realizing I wasn't really being that effective. And I was traditionally an organizer, an activist before I got involved with all that nonsense. And so I wanted to do a show that encouraged people to kind of get up and and start disrupting the status quo in ways that are more effective than I was doing. So I wanted to kind of call on all the people that I could think of that were willing to share their knowledge, their, you know, failures, their successes, what works, what didn't work, and so that people could see themselves too doing that work. Because I think a lot of people are frustrated with the world. Yep. but they don't know how to get in and, and where to start or what exactly to focus on. So I'd like to be that a bit of a stepping stone for folks, right? So you hear actual stories from activists and how they shape their organization, how they do their work. But then you'll also hear discussions on how power structures work so people can better dismantle them, disrupt them, do what they need there. So the motivation was definitely in getting more people to, you know, take up the cause of, you know, equity and a leftist movement. Yep. So you started the show then. I mean, where did the title Blueprints of Disruption come from then? It was quite literally what I envisioned providing people. 
you know, here are the blueprints, like, here's how you can build databases, here's how you can stay safe as an activist, here's how you can get the most political leverage for your cause, here's how you can create networks so you can share the load, here are the blueprints to disrupt capitalism. And uh, the people I was working with just hated the name. Um, <laughs> you know, Okay. it was up to me. They were very good at giving me complete creative control. But I guess it's a bit of a mouthful. And, you know, people who are on the sidelines might be a little put off. It's a little forward. But um, I wanted people to know what they were getting into, right? We, we advocate for disruption, right? Yep. Sometimes confrontational tactics to get what needs to be done, done. Not all the time, but yeah, so <laughs> that's the name. And like I said, I, I, I think I did in my first few intros call it for disruption, but um, that's certainly what it's become. Yeah. And for, as for names, we, the group that put on the show, so it's myself, my producer, Santiago Hulu Quintero. as well as Jay Woodruff. Uh, and we are the Rabble Rousers Cooperative. So, you know, again, people know exactly what they're getting with our name. So the writing's on the wall. Yeah, I mean, I mean, blueprints. That's you know, like like you said, it's like the basis on which things. You know, that that's how I see it. Is it's like the this is the basis of where you build from. Uh, but when, when you talk about activism, I mean, I, I was going to say this later on. So, what, why would you say that what you were doing as an activist beforehand? Why would you say that you weren't getting very far? I mean. I mean, every step, whether it's a negative or positive, no matter what step, it's still a step sort of in the right direction, essentially, if you look at it. Because if you if something goes wrong, it's something that you learn from. And if you make a tiny difference, then you've still made a tiny difference. I appreciate you reminding me of that because I do lose sight of that a lot. And you're right. The As a community organizer, I made a lot of impact in my community, uh, organizing around decent work and uh, other issues. But when I felt like I was wasting my energy was in party politics. But you are right. I did make an impact there. It wasn't what I wanted, you know, but I wanted all bread and roses, right? But um, it was harmful to me. So I didn't know that I would focus on this, but I think the third episode in uh, is called Inside the NDP, and we created a mini series out of it. So even though I don't really want to wade into party politics anymore, I wasn't going to just hoard the knowledge that I had gained and that my comrades had gained and not do anything with it. So we created a series that explores different aspects of the NDP because it really is the only electoral outlet for leftists, uh, progressives, whatever you want to call it here in Canada. Um, and, you know, they've been... pretty hostile to socialists. So it's a bit of a, a warning, but also the knowledge. So if, if people do want to wade into those spaces still and, and see what they can do there and make changes, then they will have tools. And other people who then maybe don't have the energy to spend in that will 
be encouraged to go elsewhere. But, you know, I, I don't think I advocate for a complete abandonment of any political avenue. But I've sure been tired out by by one. But yeah, we, we did turn it into a positive because those are our most best performing episodes are the looks inside the NDP. And I think we've done about seven or eight of them now. So yeah, I keep saying I don't want to talk about them anymore. Um, and then I do. And I'm glad I did, right? Because people are, we get the most messages from them as well, like appreciative of the, that that knowledge and sharing our lived experience in a way. That's good. So how do you choose the guests that you have on your show? And the, how do you choose the topics? But at the same time, I mean, a, a clever part to this is that you 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 have a topic. It's like before before we started officially recording, uh, we were saying about uh, an episode that jumped out to me of of John Clark, and I found that when you when you had John Clark on the show, it perfectly matched a recent event in the case of the you know the the action that was going on just before in Canada. And you were you were you were sort of like with John, and you were looking at it in comparison to a similar action that took place in 1995. And that's really clever, where you have picked a a perfect guest to discuss something that's of now, and looking at how there's a similarity to that, but also at the same time when you were in, when you were talking with John, you were saying how things have changed some for the better and some for the worse. And so how how do you go about that? That sounds like a lot of work. It doesn't, it actually isn't a lot of work because although there are some tangents that we go on throughout like the 51 episodes, you know, something will come up that I need to vent about, right? So I try to think of a comrade that would know maybe more than me, or at least, you know, I would be able to have a fiery discussion with and call them in. But a lot of it is this really genuine journey with me from the start. And, you know, we started with the We Keep Us Safe episode because I thought if I was going to encourage disruption, I should first teach people or provide the information for people to remain safe, right? It would be irresponsible for me. And other episodes you'll see not only tie to current events because I experience them and I have questions about them, but they are a continual path because although we try to answer questions in our episodes, we end up asking a lot at the end, you know, we need to know more. And so my producer and I think of, of a question or just naturally come up with a question and try to figure out who could help us answer it. Sometimes it's just us dishing too. Like you just got to talk it out and figure it out for yourself. But a lot of the time, you know, we're cognizant that we aren't experts in all of these fields. And thankfully I've been politically involved for quite some time, you know, like 20 years. And I know great people like John Clark and, and other folks, most of my guests I've known previously. And so I know what their passions are. And then I know that they can speak really well to what we're looking to explore that week. Um, and I've been lucky, you know, it's hard. People don't have a lot of spare time to to sit down for an hour, these activists anyway. So I'm, you know, my producer tries to encourage me to do more solo episodes, but I 
I have a bit of imposter syndrome. I'm sure I'm always looking <laughs> for an expert, you know, um, to validate me. <laughs> I can understand that because all my shows, I'm always talking with people. Well, most of the time, yes. But uh, but um, saying that, I mean, the guests that you get, they cover the the whole spectrum of of activism. So you get them from different levels. They they do a different job within that world much as people on the outside might see it as oh it's just these people that get together they do this blah blah, blah and they don't see the how it's all planned and how each per how there's a different people that do different roles a lot of people just see it as oh it's just these people that are pissed off about this and that's it yeah but there's a lot more to it than that and you get all those little those people those cogs in the wheel you got you've got all of them there on your show. Yeah, um, I did a lot of work as a volunteer coordinator in political spaces, and sometimes there's a real devaluement of all of those cogs. One person kind of gets to be the face, or maybe a few people get to be the face of a movement. You know, they're the target. You can blame them. You can also reward them. You know, with accolades. But in reality, it's also the grade ten youths doing graphic design for an organization. It's the volunteer power that uh, progressive movements have to rely on, and the best organizations out there. When we talk to them, are the ones that have a role for everyone. Uh, a task to fit all passions, ability levels. And it's those movements that are most successful because people feel like they are actually contributing. Of course, you know, they don't get a lot of the glorification. So when I go to do shows, I definitely want to make sure that those people are recognized for those talents and to encourage people that, when you get people that come on board and say they can do X, Y, and Z, you know, let them. Yep. You know, there's a real tendency for a lot of us and in all different walks of life to take control and not want to relinquish any of it and have trust issues and, and all of that. But the talent pool that exists in the grassroots is unmeasurable, right? If you look to even France, where you know you had actual bricklayers building a wall in the middle of the street. Um you know, there's a there's a job for everyone in the movement, uh, whatever whatever your talent is. Yeah, I mean, touching back on what I said about people having a misconception, you there's also the misconception that the problem is that that when something goes wrong, where people are, you know, basically they're there and they're rallying against something. The only time when people realize that these things happen, or most of the time, is when it is when there's something that goes wrong and there's like a negative element that takes part. Which is a shame because a lot of the time people don't realize when a lot of these things are happening because, like I mentioned, there's different cogwheels in this. So within each, you've got liaisons, for instance, because by law you have a right. To, to you know to to be active against these things and to you know to protest and, it, and it's in it's a legal right in most in most countries in my country in in, in Canada in America in all these countries well that's getting and, a little sketchy now but for now we have it okay yes yeah we, we've got a problem with the labor party who have who are trying to disown all the the unions in the UK you know 
that is wrong. Uh, but so you've got that. But in in, in each of these organisations, there's a liaison there who liaises with, you know, much as there's problems, you know, in some, you know, especially in America with the police or whatever. You have to. There's a liaison there because then you have a back and forth between. So yes, you can protest. And the police are just there to make sure that nothing goes wrong or whatever, and that's it. And there's usually that's why you don't hear about most of them is because nothing negative happens, and it's just like we're protesting against this. There's not been a problem there, and that's the good side to it with all these cogwheels because that is where it's worked. But people don't see those positive events where it happens, and it's good. Yeah, and I can understand how sometimes certain actions that are disruptive, one, get deliberately painted in a very negative light. Um, you know, that's definitely deliberate a lot of the times. But there is an argument to be had, though, that it is the more disruptive, sometimes seemingly negative actions that get people to look. But certainly, yeah, there are a lot of things that go on behind the scenes that make any of this happen. Um, the, a good example for that is when a union uh, transforms itself. We had a union here that for once went on a solidarity strike for another union. It, you know, that doesn't happen very often over here yeah. in Canada. And for most people, they look at the one leader that stands there and makes that decision. But the reality is there has been a slew of work done from shop steward levels up hard, hard grassroots organizing work that lead to these moments. And a lot of, you know, the time that's what the ep the episodes are about is that kind of grassroots organizing, making connections, talking to people in effective ways and that yeah, make for those big historical moments that we get to talk to John Clark about and, and who actually makes the decisions there. So leading up to the uh, actual making or recording the show, what sort of research do you do leading up to recording the show and what sort of notes do you take? It depends on the type of episode. So if it's an interview with an activist, I will pour over their work, their organization's work, their statements. And usually I'm already familiar with the issue that they're talking about. It's kind of why I want to talk to them. So, but I'll make sure I have at least a base knowledge. Uh, I had guests on from, or I guest on from, I'm going to get their coalition wrong, but they were working on the decriminalization of sex work and had issued a 75 page paper that they sent to me. And it was important that I read that there was no way I would have had the genuine and meaningful conversation I had with her if I hadn't been totally familiar with what they were doing, because I wasn't very versed on it. But then there's other episodes like when I'm talking about the NDP or you know, abolishing the monarchy, things that I have an opinion on. I don't really make notes because I know what I'm going to say, but I do some research so that I can match some facts to back up my rants, to validate my opinion, um, but also to understand what my counter, the counter arguments that will likely exist so we can address those before we ever have to hear them. So we 
forming an argument, so to speak. And yeah, I've got my Google Doc up so that me and my producer can see each the notes together uh, for the most part. But there's been a lot where I'm just like, we need to get in the studio. I need to talk about this now. And I have zero notes and zero prep, but like I'm upset and we like we have some really personal ones where I'm in tears or my producer has just come from something and he needed to just dish about it. And we hit the record button instead of just talking on the phone to one another. And those were important episodes for us. We weren't really concerned on how they would be received. It was almost like a therapy session for us. But like with anything you experience, you've got to know that other people are experiencing the same thing, the same emotions. And sometimes just saying it happened is enough for someone else to feel seen or, you know, you know. Absolutely. So when, when you, when you do the show then, so how is it, how is it recorded and edited? I mean, it sounds like just then that you, you rang your producer and (laughs) it was almost sounded like it was recorded on the phone. Um, no, no, we, we hop onto Riverside, which is the software we use similar to zoom, right? It's web-based and you can see one another. We usually use video for our YouTube channel. And most of the time, yes, I am lucky enough to just record a separate intro, let my producer know those two files are sitting there. He takes those separate tracks, does his magic with them and we'll we'll publish that episode i've had to do a few myself where i did the sound editing because life happens and um you know it's really just the two of us they're doing that work so yep we try to hit mondays uh monday mornings for our new episodes but there have been times where we struggled to hit that mark that episodes needed a little bit more tlc than we could handle but yeah uh that's how we do it. So you're not you're never too far ahead then with the shows that you recorded. You've not got like a couple on the back burner ready. Oh, I'm not really consistent about anything. So there are times where I will have five, six episodes in the can and I'll be like, sweet, we're good, and I'll go lax, and then all of a sudden I'll be like, Really? I need an episode for Monday? What happened? You know, where did they all go? Okay, um, scramble, scramble, scramble. And so it's really been beneficial that I know a lot of the people that we've called in so I can apologize for the last minute. Like, are you available now <laughs> to talk about, you know, that stuff you do? And um, so there's definitely been moments like that. Like Santiago, he knows if he gets a call late in the week and I'm like, hey, you want to jump in the studio that means you know i didn't do my due diligence i i didn't get an, a time nailed down uh, an interview booked in time so uh, but some of our best episodes have come from that too because then we get to talk about whatever we want to talk about but sometimes when you do that i mean so when you do record the chats um i'm guessing i'm guessing you've got bullet point notes as to points that you've got to hit but for the most part, are you trying to be sort of open with wherever the conversation takes you? Let it just go there. Yeah. Yeah, we don't. We're not very strict with keeping to our points. And Santiago, 
and a lot of the people I work with just refuse to use my Google Docs. <laughs> so I don't know what they're going to say. Um, and that's not important. If it takes us on tangents, both of us have ADHD. We're both neurodivergent. And so we quite often end up on tangents. Some of those get edited out. Some of them make for great kind of clips on their own. We once went off on a complete tangent about a mayoral race that I don't know even know how we got on the topic, but you know, it was relevant. So we took it out and it was his own little mini episode. And we were so proud of ourselves uh, for using our initiative <laughs> inability to stay on ta- track oh, yeah. to, <laughs> to gain more, <laughs> more viewers. But it, it is, but sometimes you don't want to, you know, especially when I have, a genuine exploration to do like with John Clark. Yeah. I had an idea, but I needed to know more. So he was going to take that wherever it went. And there's been a few guests like that. We did one on the kind of history of leftist struggles in Ontario. And I didn't know squat, even though I have a political science degree, that this was stuff I did not really know about. And so we booked a professor and I feel like he had just drafted a lecture for us answering all the questions that I said, I try to send my guests as many questions as possible to make it, you know, accessible. They can plan ahead, maybe allay the nerves a little. And he legit took the time I feel to write a very comprehensive lecture that, you know, needed editing. So it didn't sound like a lecture, (laughs) but you know, he really did prepare. And so there, my notes, they brought everything got answered in the questions that I had sent. So there was really no, you know, pulling on my notes. I just leaned back and, and let them go. Yeah. I, I had something very similar, the show before recording this one, I started the show and then asked them the first question or, or the, you know, not the first question, but asked them about the first bullet point that I'd written down. And they proceeded in that answer to answer the first four bullet points. And I was like, Okay, thank you very much. That makes my job a lot easier. <laughs> I know, and then you're like, "What? I don't have to do a thing." Were they reading my notes? You know, so they, yeah, they must have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I like I like to talk, but I do like to learn too. So it's kind of finding that balance of interjecting when you need to, but not letting the guests lose their flow of you know thoughts. Well, I'll, I'll be honest. I mean, that's my my whole thing with this uh, with this project that I'm doing here with Pods Like Us is, or what I've done, I've, I've ended up learning more or getting more information coming into me because of this sudden, sudden open, you know, because when I first started doing it, I thought, oh, I'll, I'll do the shows that I listen to, you know, the music shows, the film shows, and all these sort of things. But then I thought, I could expand my knowledge through this and also speak with really interesting people like yourself in the process. And it's just making me more open to receiving this new information and giving me a fuller picture of what's going on around me. And it gives your audience such a more eclectic collection of podcasts and it it reminds me of one that i haven't listened to yet but i heard of um a tiktok where she talks about it and it's just info dumping you know that's something that neurodivergent people do a lot you know we get really excited and knowledgeable about a certain topic and the floodgates open and blah 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 it all comes out right we don't even take a breath kids do that a lot too right 
And so that's what the episode is. It's just this open call. What do you want to info dump on? It can be the most random thing that's totally unconnected to anything we've done an episode on before. And I thought that's quite clever, you know, um, because some people just like to soak up knowledge, right? It doesn't even matter. They don't have a niche. It's just anything and everything. You, they just can't get enough. So, yeah, I imagine your show's good for people like that. But I'm also introducing people to who the, what these shows are about, in a sense, not just the behind the scenes and pulling away the curtain of, oh, this is how, this is how the magic works behind the scenes. It's also, I like to think of it as a micro version of that person's show or those people's show essentially where I don't just talk about that. I'll try and pick something, one or two or three things to try and pull out the knowledge of those people and it introduces people who might be looking for a show about these subjects and they'll be like, okay, what do these people know? Always asking them this question, what will their answer be like? Will I like their answer? And will I like the way that they are as people? You must listen to a lot of podcasts, though, because I was impressed, um, although I do research when I have guests on, that you were able to reference a few of the episodes there and not just reference them, but have a knowledge of what I was trying to accomplish in them. And, you know, that made me smile. That was nice. It Because uh, you do a lot of these, right? And yeah. that must take a lot of work to make sure you've got something clever to ask me. <laughs> Uh, well, we're going to pull away the curtain here, but we spoke last week as well as all the other guests. Uh, so the two shows I've done previous to this, and then one I've got tomorrow night, they came from me. I'm putting a call out for guests. And so I've listened to three episodes of all of those shows among my other normal listening while I've been at work driving a van around for, for five night shifts. Okay, so that's this that's the secret though, right? You um are playing that while you're driving, right? Yes, and then I take notes as well. Because <laughs> I, I don't know if you've noticed, but I put a blog out and it includes notes that. from from shows that I've listened to. Because I take I, notes. I keep meaning to do I like to write and I keep meaning to do more of that to kind of cross repurpose the content. Um, and post it on the different social media that allow for more lengthier kind of reflections. Because sometimes I stop recording and I think of more questions that, you know, that I'll then have to explore on a different episode or a perspective I didn't get to share, a point of clarification, you know, that, you know, writing a blog like that would give you the avenue for. Uh, it's just, I am not very um disciplined <laughs> i'm working on that and yeah <laughs> anyone has advice there but you know i got adhd working against me there <laughs> you'll get the uh, the email address later to send the advice to <laughs> yes for sure thank you but what was i going to say the, the only the only negative about it is that my notes are taken by a should we say an ai on a phone I won't advertise. No advertising. It does it do a good job, or do you find you got to go back and be like, "I did not say that." I do have to go back every now and again. Yeah. There's some difficult names or difficult words, and it will change it to something completely different. 
But the problem there is, you know, I come back to it and I'll look and I'll think, what did I actually say there? <laughs> trying to make sense of yourself. No one can do that. <laughs> <laughs> trying to make sense of the um, the telephone's AI and what it thought I'd said. It's the same with transcripts. Like the, the program that we use, Riverside gives free transcription, but it is rough. Um, and we do try to make our content as accessible as possible. Like everything we do is free. We do have a Patreon so folks can support it, but you know, you don't get any extra content there because you know, I'm a socialist. I'm not gonna put anything behind a paywall, especially information. But you know, <laughs> yeah, it, it's a bit of a struggle sometimes to um, just make sure there's enough content to engage people. I feel bad now because I've got a Patreon page. Um... Yes. So yeah. <laughs> that wasn't to shame you. I'm sorry. It's, it's okay. <laughs> I, I mean, I mean, actually, my notes from last night include my my dig at my employer about something. So, I'd, if truth be told, I'd love to be able to, you know, just tell them to stuff it and give it all up. There's a line in that song that I referenced, I think, before we started recording for real, where, you know, you you ain't done nothing if you ain't been called the red. And I'm going to forget the actual line, but it was, you know, you, you always get this feedback when you do rabble rousing and activism or same with you get tattoos, right? You'll never find a job or, you, you know, you hang out with those communists, you're going to get fired. And it's like, <laughs> I'm a podcaster, right? This is my job. It doesn't pay, but... Um, uh, either way, there's, there's nothing to lose here. No, but it, it's a lot more fun doing podcasting than it is going doing the uh, doing the work that I do. Although saying that, the positive to doing my work is that I'm in a van listening to really good podcasts. That give you all that material, right? That's to right. then do your passion. Absolutely, the passion. So uh, show music, intro, outro. Um yeah, I like the um, I like the is the intro still the same where you've got all these these voices sort of like just shouting these things and yeah. <laughs> well, it's a if you've ever been to a march at least in North America and South America except obviously it would be in Spanish um the chant is this is what democracy looks like and that is a reference to, you know, the fact that activism and rabble rousing and disrupting is actually democratic activity it, it does it goes beyond the ballot so it is still the same intro i don't know if i'd ever be able to get rid of it i've re-recorded my little blurb at the beginning that where i try to you know allow folks to know what they're getting into weekly i'm never happy with that i'm always listening back to myself going i gotta redo that again i gotta redo that again but you know I don't do that to my producer. I just got to stop listening to myself after a while. But yeah, that's, um, we thought a lot about that. We do want to incorporate more music though. We just don't know how yet. Not that he's ever listening, but you, you could do with Zach Della Rocker or somebody doing the voiceover for you for the intro. Oh, I'm, I'm in for that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. I'll give him a shout. <laughs> Put in a good word for me. Although his, his guitarist is easier to get hold of, I'll be honest. Oh, well, 
<laughs> my producer Santiago, he is a musician. You know, I'm not sure there's an instrument he doesn't play. So maybe we just get like a jam session going on for the next Zoom. That's a good idea. That's a great idea. So yeah, show me and and the show logo as well. That's that's like a classic classic image, really, of lots of people there and the the flag. You know, that's been is, is it a burnt flag? It's waving. I don't think it's burning yet, yep. but it has that real, you know, barricade vibe to it. Uh, a mix of different people. It's clear that are you know rising up and headed towards something together. And yeah, it's just very demonstrative of our content. So we thought just by first glance, you would kind of know what you were getting into. Um, full disclosure. <laughs> But um, so, what would you say then are episodes? I mean, you've you've been going for a long, long while now. So, what would you say are episodes that have stood out to you over this time? You know that uh, it's like I said to other people before. It's like it's like picking a favorite child, really, which you can't really do. But are there some that really stand out to you as that was? something really important or different um there were probably there are two episodes that were really impactful one was a very personal one for me that the party that i referenced earlier in the episode the political party had kicked me out of the party and had you know kind of launched a attack on me of sorts. And that's one of those episodes where I was just like, I need to get in the studio. I need to respond to this because I'd actually been told not to make a public response. And so I did anything but. And when I listened back to that, it really hit me. You know, there are points in the episode where I am upset. You know, I think some of the sobs are edited out, but it was hard to get through. And listening back to it, though, had the opposite effect. You know, I got really angry and empowered and a little nervous at airing it, but it by far exceeded my expectations. Like, people really resonated with it. And when I saw the numbers of the audience, the audience numbers for that compared to our other, we're still a very small podcast, it was just, I felt really validated. So it really was like therapy for me that whole week that it aired and I got to talk about it. But one that impacted our entire team was when we interviewed Indigenous land defenders from a movement we call Land Back. They were yeah. from 1492 Land Back Lane, specifically here in Ontario, trying to reclaim land that's set for development, um, like what land isn't. And what it was about that was because we talk about activism and and the movement, it was realizing how much heavy lift lifting and generational work and commitment and sacrifice indigenous people have had to make to try to do the right thing, like to reclaim land so we can have clean drinking water. So we stop doing to it what we're doing to it. And um, they don't get the recognition. They don't get the help or the solidarity they deserve. And so there was a bit of guilt, that settler guilt that, that played in, but also it lit a fire in us to make more waves, you know, to get more people to understand that 
they've got to do the work, right? They, you've got to get up and do something about it. So both of us, when I say that, my, my producer and I got on the phone after that and was just like, that really hit us. Like that, it changed us. It changed how we saw what our role was, I think. Yeah, well, the first first one of those, um, I, I'd say that there's something about that where when when somebody does a show like yours, where you are being so open, like 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 you were hinting at, it's like a catharsis in a way. It's like a you have to get this out of you, and then there's like almost a there's almost like a within yourself a relief of I've got that Absolutely. out. I've got that out of me, but it's those sort of moments in in these things, you know, as with a lot of media, it's like, you know, we were talking about songs, when people write songs that are like that, and it's honest, and it's their emotion there in the song, that's when you, if you're the right sort of person to receive this and and listen to this or get this, then that's when it hits you as a listener or as a person taking you know watching well with a television program with a film with anything that's where it makes the most impact yeah yeah we've experienced that a few times too um my producer had a really rough experience at a media event he was covering and how it related to his role as a journalist and he just absolutely needed to explore that he needed a friend to talk to first of all but from my experience with my episode I knew let's record this if after the end if we're done and you don't want this to see the light of day by all means we leave it but we knew that many journalists especially student journalists going through this process we're struggling with these same issues, these same hypocrisies and other barriers to their work, you know? And so again, yeah, it wasn't worrying so much because sometimes you're worried about it tying into something current or being something that everybody wants to talk about or having a really high profile guest to make sure that you can up the audience numbers, right? But sometimes, yeah, you just need to tell really genuine stories that are unscripted and unexpected and see see who connects with it someone absolutely. will absolutely so um i've, I've put it here. I, I, I don't know really how, how this activism rights and wrongs so that's essentially that probably goes right goes hand in hand with the later one of general advice what would you suggest to people if they are fighting for something, are the basics of what they need to look at when they are fighting against something or, you know, or trying to actually make things better for people? Because that's essentially what people are doing. You're taking something that's wrong in the world and you're trying to make it better, essentially. Yeah. So for first-timers... Rather than start anything new, you know, I would, my, the best advice is to find people already doing the work that you're, you know, concerned about or passionate about and join up with them. Yeah. And 
especially if you're talking about climate activism, I think it can be really hard to know where to start. You know, there's like pipelines, there's coal, there's the water, the air. Uh, so when I talked to activists, our, our most recent episode was with transit activists. And, you know, I asked them, why transit? All the things you can fight for, healthcare, education, you know, it was because they felt like it was an avenue to address the inequality that they saw as well as climate action. And they had found that one kind of local niche where they could make impacts at the municipal level, at like our lowest government level, and do something. You know, they weren't going to lower the emissions across the planet with this, but they were going to make an impact. And my advice to organizers out there, activists already doing that work, I got lots of it, but, you know, <laughs> to the most important one, I think, is to remain optimistic and to bring joy into your movement. Because you need people to be sustained and times are really scary, especially to the people who are fighting to make it better, right? You wouldn't do that if you didn't think things were dire, right? Spend your free time doing this work. So they need to be uplifted constantly. So find room in your budget, find room in your time, work it into your meetings if you have to, but like make sure you bring joy to these movements and to, to this work and or else it won't, it won't last, you know? So also, don't see yourself as solving any one of these problems yourself. I think the best advice I ever heard was, you're just there to make impact, right? So anyone who's gardened will know that you can plant a few seeds. Some of them will not sprout. Some of them will sprout, just kind of peter off. And some will absolutely thrive and fruit and flower and create their own seeds. And sometimes you won't even know, like, let's just imagine you're gardening on the go. You actually, you don't know. You just have to know in your heart that some of them will sprout. Some of the things that you do will have incredible impact and reverberate generations. Some will do nothing, maybe, you know, or feel like nothing. And that's okay. You just got to keep at it and know that, you know, that is exponential, that one flower. Even if you grew one, that flower will grow more flowers. And, and that's, that's the role you got to play. Like I was saying earlier, when you know, in, in everything, there's always a positive to take away from everything. Even if you are learning from a negative, that's a positive that something's not 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 happened the way that you thought it would. So you learn from that, and you in the future you make you try and alter things so it it's different in the future. It's all a learning experience, and like I said, there's always positives there if you look for it. Yeah, even I had a guest on who gave me a bit of a reality check because I can get frustrated with tactics that I feel like don't do anything. And I was talking about that. I try not to do that because I feel like all tactics have validity or at least it's people trying. Yeah. But I did get into that hole and she reminded me, you know, in this battle, you know, it's a big one. You have to expect losses right i'm using scare quotes because as marv just explained you need to find the positive in that but expecting them is also part of that right stealing yourself being prepared to find the positive and also acknowledge that it was a failure to be learned from so sometimes we can get really reactionary to that and you know i'm never doing that again <laughs> and that's really not the answer 
Yeah, but even, you know, I wish I'd have actually looked on my notes for something else. Uh, because on the Womanica podcast, they were talking about somebody, and I can't remember who she was now, but um, she initially disagreed with, um, when she met with him, she disagreed with Malcolm X and certain things that he was saying, and then it it, it turned out that after a while, she realised that some of the things that he was saying were right, but sometimes it takes time for you to re- for people to realize these things. So you might not see how these things would work. You might look at them and go, oh, there's no way that's going to work. But from a different point of view, it is working because it's putting the point across there for people to see the actual truth behind what 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 is what the inequality is. It's getting the inequality there for people to see that there is something wrong there that needs to be looked at at the very least. Yeah. And I think we underestimate what people are ready for as well, right? We discount some tactics because, you know, maybe they're too disruptive or you have an idea that's just too far left, you know, we're just not ready for it. But a lot of the work is testing the waters, making space to, make it okay, right? To make it palatable to demand free education for everyone or free transit and fully funded healthcare. You know, if it's not safe to say it now, then make some space, right? Rather than waiting for the conditions to be right or knowing that the conditions are right because, you know, truly knowledgeable people know that they don't know things. <laughs> and a lot of is trial and error. So sometimes it works, sometimes it's not, but yeah, it's really, not all that productive to discount different avenues, different political levers to pull because it's a litany of pressures that have to exist to get what we want, what we deserve, right? There is no one way of doing it. So that's why on Blueprints of Disruption, we have talked to so many different activists, like some that are solely focused on knowledge raising, others that, you know, stand outside bad employers and name and shame them until they repay stolen wages, you know, get really disruptive, you know, people who are occupying land, even though there's a heavy police presence, people who build databases for volunteer groups to get better connected. So there's different ways to do things. And yeah, it's better to embrace all of that kind of rainbow of a coalition than to, you know, think that you know the best way forward. But sometimes I forget that. <laughs> but uh, so what sort of literature and media um, would you suggest to people if they were to look for something as an inspiration? <laughs> um, well, you know, I would start with the Communist Manifesto. <laughs> I hate to be that person, but raising a working class consciousness is critical to a lot of work, right? It's like the one thing that will allow us to work in the numbers that we need to to accomplish things rather than fighting amongst ourselves and sometimes it's getting back to those basics that that bit of theory but you know my my literature collection is would be considered highly radical i think to most and maybe not the best referrals (laughs) 
Well, the Karl Marx book, I mean, that... Uh, am I really going to hit on this? Yeah. So the, the, the thing is there with that, where people might, from the outside, uh, misunderstand, because they they look at that and they see, you know, the the, the Russia uh, that... You know, they see Russia in the way that it that it that it became aware of, and they thought, oh, and they, they have this thing where you know Russia is based on based on all this. But the problem is with all politics, whoever gets in power somewhere, they find a way to manipulate, shall we say, in a way, because my, my argument with politics is all politicians get into power and make things better. For themselves, essentially. 100%, yeah. Okay. So whoever they are, the, for the most part, the millionaires that go into get go in power anyway, and they will always manipulate things to make their make themselves. You know, it's it's almost like they're sorting themselves. I'm going to I'm going to you. This is my attempt at humour. This they're making themselves a, a nice pension, shall we say, while they're in power, and that was the problem with how. Stalin, Lenin, and all these people were using that. They were using, they ended up getting in power. And initially, you know, they might have been sort of to a degree meaning everything that they'd said, like all these politicians to a degree might mean everything that they said. But then when they get into power, what is it? What is it? They say absolute power corrupts absolutely. So they get the power and that they, they, they then use that power to make themselves richer because the, the rich will always try and make themselves rich. This is where the old inequality comes from. The rich will always make themselves rich by stealing away from the poor and making the poor that little bit less better off than they are. Wages will never go up, unfortunately, according to how inflation goes up. The only people's wages that go up are the people that actually make those decisions or the people that are millionaires. That's how. That's what's wrong it isn't the actual teachings or the writings of Karl Marx that are wrong. It's how it was used wrongly by those people that were in power and were saying, oh, it's based on this, where it wasn't really. They'd manipulated it and changed it. Yeah, I think the most important part about reading Marx or reading you know, socialist theory is understanding that power imbalance that purposely exists under capitalism and how you choose to use that knowledge and to use the ideas that if we like democracy our workplaces should also be democratic if we think that works for you know something as large as a government uh surely it should apply to our workplaces so yeah what anybody decides to do that in a system of government can be suspect. A lot of the structures that exist for politics are very colonial, very authoritarian. And so even good people that get into politics end up doing exactly what you're talking about is like playing for the next four years or whatever your term limits are. Um, and yeah, working for that pension, looking to not make too many waves because they need to be reelected because that is their job now. And, you know, folks that make really big waves in politics often don't get hired very many places uh, unless they're making waves for conservatives. So it's it's an ugly game politics. And to use historical examples, um, you know, as a reason not to explore 
a different way of structuring our society. You know, surely capitalism has endless examples of how it starves and degrades and exploits. So um, the few actors out there who have, yeah, used their authoritarian powers like anything, like that's why we examine power structures. I think people would be shocked to know that even some really good organizations have really horrible structures that just like breed that same inequality that you're actually trying to fight. So part of the lesson of trying to organize is how to structure these spaces so that voices have equal weight and that your goals are just and you maintain a value system rather than playing into the game around you. But, you know, reading reading theory isn't necessary. Uh, you can learn a lot from people's lived experience. But, you know, I just use that as an example of at least one place to start. And you, you touched on something else there where, where, where it made me think uh, something that I find really irritating is uh, looking at these organisations. You have charity charity organisations where the people in charge of the charities are millionaires being paid by the charity, ridiculous money, and you think, and or I think to myself, I think, hold on, shouldn't most of that money that you're getting be going to that cause? I agree that you're doing a job and okay, you get paid for doing that job that, you know, at a push. Yeah. Or your time spent managing that company or managing that charity or charitable organization. But why on earth are they getting paid that ridiculous amount of money when that charity that they're supposed to be paying money out for is still screaming for money to do what it's supposed to be doing? Yeah, there's some really bad examples of, you know, progressive institutions not operating with the same values that they espouse. But on the flip side, we interviewed Paul Taylor of Foodshare. And this man has gone on to start something called Evenings and Weekends. And it's a consulting firm for nonprofits, mostly, on how to just do things better. And you know, I applied for a job there. I'll be honest, I didn't get it, but they pay everyone the same wage. They have four day week, uh, four day work week. They pay people for the interview that they're wow. going to go on, and so not only do they consult to teach people how to, but they're they're living that truth. They're living that example or organizing that example of what they want to be, rather than just mimicking the systems they see around them and talking about a new game. You know, they're they're doing that hard work of being those pioneers, so to speak, you know, and even if it's hard on the bottom line, even if it makes things twice as hard because you have to navigate it for the first time rather than follow a bad model. But I, I have fun watching how they progress in the different initiatives that they have because, you know, that's what it's about, right? Finding a new way forward and trying to get some folks on board. I'm down with the four-day work week. <laughs> I, oh, I'd love to do a four-day work week. I hate my five nights a week, I'll be honest. Well, so, uh, let me just say, sorry, the one of the most that I should have mentioned, one of the most powerful things about the manifesto there, and, and we, we just kind of led to it with that answer, is 
human emancipation. We often have to do things with our body and our mind that we don't enjoy. And that's okay. Like survival requires that. But to the extent that we experience it, you know, like eight hour days, five days a week, and that is like minimal, right? Like for most people, it's more than that. And that's not right. That's not natural. We haven't structured ourselves properly if we're all spinning so many wheels and not really getting anywhere. So to hit on that, sometimes it's a double-edged sword, right? When you realize all the problems that are going on or the exploitation that exists under the system, that's a hard weight to hold. Um, so yeah, <laughs> the show tries to give people outlets to not just feel the doom and gloom, but to do something about it. Well, the problem is that with that, uh, em employers and businesses can take advantage to a degree because, like I said, governments will always work towards the rich because they themselves are rich in themselves. Um, so in a lot of, lot of companies, when, when a lot of countries, when decisions are made, they will make them according to how it makes it better for the employer, not for the employee to a degree. But that, that, that's the problem. So what happens there is the employees are paid such a low amount of money. And with the financial problems that the world as a whole at the moment is in, um, and people are screaming for more money, the people who are paid the low paid are screaming for more money because as their bills go up, their money isn't going up, which, which in itself causes a problem because then you have businesses that where some people work 12-hour shifts nowadays. So you'll find people working 12-hour shifts. I do a 12-and-a-half-hour shift, 12, and 12 hours, 12-and-a-half. 12 and, and because the money's so low paid, to be able to pay the bills, then you're going out for five, five times a week to do those hours, which then causes the, you know, going to a completely different thing. It causes the mental and the instability of home life for these people because their life is all at work. They come home. There's no time at home during those five days a week, which back in the old days before, you know, when people were only working, working shorter shifts and you had the four day week that we had in the seventies and the eighties for the most part, back then you had a better work life, work home life balance where, where relationships and family worked better. But now that's been pulled back because people are having to work more hours to get that more money because the money that they're getting paid, even though it looks better, it actually isn't. Yeah, we we did a mini series called Burnout. And we got there because so many people around us, particularly going through, you know, COVID and all of its stressors, are burnt out, like this level of exhaustion and disconnect. And, you know, it manifests itself in so many different ways. I sat down to do the our comrade Jay, he does those those interviews with people talking about like what burns you out. And in the end, most people come to the reality that, you know, it's not an inadequacy of yourself. It's the system that we live under that forces folks to be in this grind mode for so long and has strains on our relationships. There's kind of like a friendship recession that Santiago talks about 
that COVID has played into, but just so many other things like lack of free time, lack of third spaces, you know, not home, not work, somewhere to gather. And those yep. spaces are less and less. So a lot of times organizing and building community is just recreating those spaces. Like people try to think of like, how can I get the government to change this and that? And like some activism isn't always so complicated. Sometimes it's literally carving out a small space virtually, geographically, to allow people to gather and connect, and then you go from there. But those spaces are hard to come by. And so talking about burnout was important to us because, you know, not only to allow people to tell their personal perspectives, which is like we talked about earlier, always needed, but to also explore the systemic role that capitalism plays on our mental health. For a long time, a lot of people like there are, you know, chemical imbalances that can exist within people and whatnot. But for the most part, people are finding out that it is just living under constant anxiety of having to pay bills or starve or that you'll get sick and won't be able to pay your medical bills or whatever it is that you really as a human being, as a, as a living thing, this is an artificial stressor that's been put on us by a system. Right. And you know, that's okay. It's not okay. We're trying to change it, but it's not you. It's kind of like this very human reaction to living this really kind of strained life. Absolutely. So what advice would you give to people if they were starting their own podcast? Get help from friends. So build a team around you. So the workload is shared and you know, you just feel like you've got people to lean on and have a little more confidence in what you have to say in your voice. I know that was what I struggled with. I talked as little as possible, uh, didn't see value in my voice, and I think I found it a little bit. So, yeah, that would be my two, because technical advice, you'd have to talk to my producer for that. <laughs> That would be an interesting chat at some point, if possible. But what what podcast do you listen to yourself? Do you enjoy listening to podcasts? And what do you, yeah, what do you like listening to? I'll be honest, I don't consume a lot of podcasts. I've got two small children, so my ears are often filled with a cacophony of noise. That's why I lit up and I was like, that's your secret. You're in a van with headphones or whatever, and you know. You can just sit and listen. And I miss that time. I know it will come again. But uh, yeah, I, when my headphones are on, I'm usually recording in the studio. Um, but there are a few that I have loaded on my reminder. They just come in my ear. And so I just want to give one a shout out because. There sorry, is a podcast gonna... for kids, but there are podcasts for kids, by the way. Are there? Yes uh what is it the old man in the boat that's that's a short series that's a short series i think there's about 10 episodes and they're about 10 minutes each i think oh uh, that's about their attention span that would be good and so it's so it's educational i think it's a it's a british podcast but um it's interesting it's very well produced and it's like a story and each each time it, the old man in the boat comes across something new and it, it's sort of like explaining what this something new is or you know, so so a seagull will approach and they'll be talking to the seagull. And yeah, it's it's weird. But there you go. 
there's there's a niche for everyone but i yeah the warrior life with pam Pal palmeter uh it's about indigenous activism and other things being done in the movement there and i'm a big fan of her so when she started sharing this content uh i definitely set a reminder so i download that episode whenever it comes up Okay. I saw you making notes. You, can... you saw me writing that one down. Call Pam. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's probably a very busy person. Uh, this is probably one of the the smaller bits that she does, but uh, it's definitely worth a listen. Yeah, absolutely. As soon as you said about the Indigenous and that, I had to go, right, you know, I'll, 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 I'll listen to that. That's fascinating. So where can people get hold of you and, yeah, find the show? So we are on almost every podcast streaming app that we could connect with. So all your usual suspects. We do load a lot of our content onto YouTube at BP of Disruption. That's our tag on Instagram and Twitter. We're also on Facebook. But all of our content typically goes up on our RSS, RSS feed um, with some bonus stuff ending up on YouTube once in a while. Okay. And you can email us at bpofdisruption at gmail.com if you want to be a guest. That's great. Thank you very much. Or if you want to send any questions or something to to, to Jessica, because I'm sure that she'll answer them if you, if you ask her some questions. For sure. A lot of my episodes have been booked by people who've seen actions or groups and you have to talk to these people. And so I have to talk to those people. I try to keep the audience happy that way. And if you know anybody that Jessa doesn't know that, you know, is involved in activism that you think Jessa needs to speak to or check out. Absolutely. I would love the attention there. The more the merrier. Okay. Thank you for speaking with me today, Jessa. Thank you, Marv. I had a blast. Me too. Anyway, you can find Pods Like Us on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and Twitter. I don't normally say it that way. That's why I looked a bit weird. And we're, we're, you can contact us through podslikeus at gmail.com. Anyway, thank you everyone for listening and hope you listen again to another episode of Pods Like Us. If I take a photograph of this picture of us talking, uh, do, do you want to keep your anonymity or do you not mind me posting it with the eventual episode when it comes out? Oh, no, that's fine. My face is kind of out there. Okay. Because I... I know that a lot of people involved in, you know, like the anonymity, like Noodle, which, you know, I can understand, really. Absolutely. And I kind of, when I did that episode, it was this realization where, and we talk about that, you know, if you're out there, you're out there, then at least, you know, use your imagery as a beacon, like for a purpose, but there's a lot of work that can still be done and you can retain some anonymity in some spaces. But when I'm talking about my podcast, uh, that's already a done deal. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Right. I, I, I.
I, I know someone new was it Noodle or is it somebody else was talking about on one of your episodes Rage Against the Machine as a, as, a, as a band or something that they listened to. And yeah, uh, I, I go on. I like to ask people where they were politicized or how they were politicized because not everybody is kind of cognizant of what's going on and the need to fight back and you know organize so i'm always curious to find out and usually it's a person um but for noodle it was music from from their youth and yeah i like rage obviously is probably up there for a few people in terms of uh, a moment of enlightenment i hate to say woke now because i feel it's a label that's used against us but that's kind of what it is right when you're politicized in a good way I guess. well my first show i recorded today was with chris from the walking tall podcast and oh, very cool. when i was talking when i was listening to the episode where he was discussing his own um, history and his own trauma he mentioned rage against the machine there so when he came onto the chat i was playing some rage against the machine on my bass guitar for him nice trying to set the mood set the mood for him and yeah he said oh he goes oh and then i said yeah i saw i saw them at uh, i saw them at wembley arena when they're on the uh, battle of los angeles tour incredible concert yeah it's maybe not too rare anymore we're kind of moving in a different direction but music is a form of activism in itself right and everyone has a talent um to play in in the movement and you know musicians they got to make music so when they use those platforms to say their truth and speak truth to power, it it's incredibly um, impactful versus, you know, just singing about a lovely day or maybe a love song. Um, I'm always kind of more keen to the folks that have something a little harder to say, you know, I guess there's space for everything, but. I shouldn't keep I'm, on the music thing because people point out that when I go into music on my show, I get carried away with it. Because otherwise I could say, if you go back, you'll go back to people like, you know, Gil Scott, Heron, and you'll have, um, yeah, Gil Scott, Heron, Sly and the Family Stone. A lot of their songs were about, you know, rights and about, well, black rights and the difference between black and white and those things. And who else have you got? Even even Miles, Miles Davis in the 70s was very much for that sort of thing. And, you know, you could go back to all of these people, the last poets as well, you know, who were... A lot of people don't realize probably the first, you know, essential rap artist or at least artist that used poetic, um, you know, writing in their their, their songs. But I'm, I'm digressing and going on. A, yeah. Well, it's just a form of storytelling, but, you know, you would like to talk about music. I'm game for a little bit here as well, because part of what the show does, the Blueprints of Disruption is along with all kinds of other things, but is to find ways to make movements, political movements, activist movements, sustainable, joyful. And sometimes that involves music. Like you think of all the other things you need to do as an activist, like all the boxes you have to check and the power levers you have to pull and the fight. And sometimes we forget that people also have to a good have to have a good time yeah. while they're they're in this critical fight right while they're battling it out and can be kind of dreary and we all work too and so yeah like we like to explore the different ways people lift themselves up and 
you know, uh, some of people's favorite moments during protests, during direct actions are when the drums play um, or there's a particular song everyone sings together. And it can seem superficial, like a kind of afterthought, but they they create these memories and solidarity moments that, you know, are critical to working into activism. Yeah, it's like it's like you know you go far enough back, even back to the sixties, probably the late fifties, and you've got the Seegers, you know, with the "We Shall Not Be Moved," you know, which was you know the big activism song that people used to sing at some rallies back in those days. Yeah, yeah, I think every generation probably has a few you know anthems that speak to the struggles of the moment. it seems more so in the past than now. Maybe we have different avenues of expression. Uh, who knows? But, you know, it's definitely part of part of disrupting the status quo, right? Giving people those those perspectives that they don't normally hear, you know? Like, can you swear on your chat? Like, Yeah, we're, well, uh, we're not in the actual main body of the show yet, but yeah. Okay, okay. Or, or, <laughs> well, you know, I, might, just like, I might pull some bits into the show. Actually. You know, like, fuck you, I won't do what you tell me. Yes. Yep. <laughs> like, you know, people aren't used to hearing that. It shakes you up a little bit. Especially when it, it's number one on the charts in the UK. Yeah, I remember a school dance where they were explicitly told, like, okay, you know, play whatever you want, don't play that. And then obviously the last song that the the student DJ puts on was that. And, you know, the whole student body is screaming it as loud as they can, just because it's just like the one time they can get away with it. And it, it was glorious. We used to have a thing with a band I was in where we'd play probably one Rage Against the Machine song in our set. And uh, I mean, this is this is really bad, really. So uh, we we played we played this one one gig in a in a in a pub in in you know Nottinghamshire, and we were there and then the um, so we did the one uh, Rage Against the Machine song because because of the language essentially uh, <laughs> yeah. in the first half of the set and then we were all we all decided to go for a drink, and um, so um, I, I don't need to stay. I say don't need to say I stay I stay sober when I when I used to do gigs. So I'd have like a coffee or a tea, and the others would drink alcohol. Um, but we're in, we're there, and then the uh, the landlord said, "Oh, you know, we don't want any more swearing in any of any of your set on any of your second half of your set, but, you know, because you know just don't." And um, it didn't really work because then. Another member of the member of the band because we all we all sang all three of us did me the drummer and the the guitarist and and so the guitarist looked at me and he when that when the bar the landlord said that he looked at me and he gave me this look and and it was like all right okay so we went we sat down and then he's got a piece of paper and a pen and he changes the entire second half of the set. <laughs> So we've got five or six more Rage Against the Machine songs in that half. And we were never able Five or to six more. <laughs> more Rage Against the Machine songs that we did. And we got, we got banned for life from playing in that pub ever again. Oh, well, kind of a badge of honour, but not if you need to pay the bills <laughs> with your gigs, I suppose. But, you know, every... 
it's it reminds me of that song where you ain't done nothing if you've not been called a red. It's almost like you're not really worth nothing if you've not been kicked out of somewhere, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. Conforming a little too much. <laughs> you need to sometimes you need to rebel, even if it's just against people saying, No, you can't do that. Yeah, we can just because kids do it all the time, right? <laughs> It's the bit of the child the coming out. No. <laughs> no, no matter how old you are, you have to let that bit of a child come out at times. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Where would we be without it? No, I won't go to bed at this time. <laughs> yeah. One eye open. That's right. <laughs> They've shut the door and they don't know I'm still awake. <laughs> <laughs> I can't leave until they're like snoring or, you know, I'm sure I don't get away with it. <laughs> Got to test the water. Mm. 